Welcome to NASA Edge. An inside and outside look at all things NASA. Hey, today we have a great show because we're going to be talking about the total solar eclipse. A phenomenon which hasn't occurred in the United States, well, the contiguous United States, since 1979. And this next total solar eclipse is going to take place on August 21st, 2017, and we're going to actually be there for a live show in Carbondale, Illinois. Yeah, I can't wait. You know, that path of totality is going to swing just south of Portland, Oregon. It's going to sweep through Casper, Wyoming, go just south of St. Louis, through Bowling Green, Kentucky, into Charleston, South Carolina. It's going to be awesome because millions of people from around the world are going to be coming to the United States. And not to see us, but to see the total solar <laughs> eclipse. Right. And it's crazy. Well, actually, I haven't seen the total solar eclipse since the opening of Heroes. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. Because I was say, when do you see a total solar eclipse? I, don't, I, I want some superpowers. Hopefully with this eclipse, we can pick up some superpowers. Maybe. I tell you what, we have a lot of uh, subject matter experts on the show today. We're going to be talking about eclipses in general where the best sites to see the eclipse, and we're going to talk a little bit about where we're going to be and about our show. But to get things started, I talked to Eric Christian at the Goddard Space Flight Center, and he gave me the 411 on what a total solar eclipse is and why it's so important to us. So Eric, tell us exactly what is a total solar eclipse? So a total solar eclipse is when the moon moves between the Earth and the sun so that it completely blocks the light from the surface of the sun. And at that time, the Earth gets dark. You're in the shadow of the moon, and you can see the atmosphere of the sun, which normally you can't see, called the corona, streaming away from the sun. It's a really neat, in the middle of the day, you're seeing it dusk to dark on the ground. The animals react. It's just a really amazing situation. Now, Eric, how common is it for someone in the United States to actually view a total solar eclipse? So a total eclipse happens somewhere on the Earth at most twice a year. Most years only get one because of timing of where the moon is in its orbit. But somewhere on the planet, on the average of once a year, you get a total solar eclipse. But the shadow of the moon is actually pretty small. And so if you're just standing at one point on the Earth waiting for a total solar eclipse, it can be hundreds of years between when a total solar eclipse will happen. What's really neat about the 2017 solar eclipse is that even though the shadow is small, it goes right across the heart of the United States, from Oregon through south of St. Louis, all the way to South Carolina. And so even though it's only gonna be a small part of the United States that sees the total solar eclipse, everyone in the United States is gonna get at least a partial solar eclipse, and anyone who wants to can tr easily travel to the path of totality, to this line that the shadow takes across the United States. What is the path of totality? So the path of totality, there, there's a large region where the moon will only partially block the sun. We call that a partial solar eclipse. The region where the moon completely blocks the sun is pretty small, and that region moves at better than 1,000 miles an hour across the United States. So that's called the path of totality. That's where the path of the shadow of the moon moves as the total solar eclipse happens. So Eric, there are satellites in space that study the sun. Why is it important for us to do it from the ground here on Earth? So there's a couple reasons why. We have what are called coronagraphs, which make an artificial solar eclipse by putting a disk out in front of a telescope and camera to block the main light of the sun so you can see the corona, the, the atmosphere of the sun streaming away from the sun. We've been flying those for many years in space, but because for various physics reasons, because the disk is so close to the telescope, you can't get 
all the way down to the surface of the sun. You have to start further out. You have to block more than just the sun in order to see the corona. With a total solar eclipse, the moon is almost perfectly the size of the sun. And so you see the corona almost all the way down to the surface of the sun. And that's actually that narrow region that you can see in a total solar eclipse that you can't see from space is where all the action is happening. That's where the solar wind is accelerated. That's where the corona is heated. And so that's really exciting to see that deep corona in a total solar eclipse from the Earth that you can't see from space. The other thing that's useful about a total solar eclipse on the Earth is that it's a great way to test instruments that are studying the solar corona without the expense of launching them into space. And so you can actually point at the solar corona, look at it during the total solar eclipse. You've only got a couple minutes, and so it's a, it's a real rushed job. But during those eclipses, you can test an instrument in a way that you can't until you act, so you get a much better instrument that you can launch. Now, scientists have been studying eclipses for forever. Mm -hmm. And what different information do they collect when they see an eclipse one year after the other? So the sun is always changing. The sun is a variable star. And so the, that corona changes with time. The corona is millions of degrees, much hotter than the surface of the sun. And normally when you get further away from a heat source, you get colder. Mm -hmm. So the question of why the corona is so hot is one of the big scientific questions we have about the sun. And solar eclipses can help us with that. Now, we just can't look up into the sky with our bare eyes. We right. need some protection. Tell us a little bit about what we need to actually view the solar eclipse. So during the total solar eclipse, when the moon completely blocks the main light of the sun and you see the corona, you actually don't need glasses. That's one of the neat things about it. But any other time during partial solar eclipses, during things called annular solar eclipses, and during planetary transits, Mercury and Venus transits, you need to protect your eyes. You'll really hurt your retina if you just stare at the sun. Even if only a sliver of it, the sun is so bright that it only takes a teeny sliver to do some damage. So even though it may look dim because most of the sun is blocked, you still need glasses. And there'll be millions of these things across the United States, and you should put on your protective glasses, and then you'll still be able to see the sun. These things are completely black to everything except the really bright light, but you'll still be able to see the sun. You'll be able to see the crescent shape during the partial eclipse, and you'll be able to see annual eclipses with glasses like these. So you gotta protect your eyes. Now keep in mind, to view a solar eclipse, you have to wear eye protection. So these sun viewing glasses is a great way to see the partial eclipse uh, before totality and after totality. And you can also use a number 14 waters glass like I'm wearing right now to view the eclipse. Or you can kick back on the star killer base and watch through a mask just like this one. Well, you, you really can't use a mask like that, Blair. Yeah, the color red mask is not going to work. No, just because it's dark around the eyes doesn't mean it's going to be safe. You're going to have to have a welder's glass or a These pinhole. type of glasses, a pinhole yeah. demonstration. I mean, just regular sunglasses is not going to cut it. I wonder if I have a receipt for this mask. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for Halloween. Great idea, Chris. Fortunately, I had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Eclipse himself, Fred Espinek who has safely seen many, many eclipses. Let's check it out. So, uh, Fred, do you mind if I call you Mr. Eclipse? Not at all. So, how many eclipses do you think you've seen in your, in your lifetime? In terms of total eclipses, I've been to 27 now. Wow. Uh, and I've seen probably about three quarters of them. Is that because of weather or? Yeah, clouds. You, I, you know, you can predict 
exactly where the eclipse is gonna to be to within a fraction of a second, but predicting the weather is a bigger challenge. And sometimes the luck of the draw, you get bad weather. Now in terms of a total eclipse, I know what that is, a total solar eclipse. What are the other kinds of eclipses that you've seen and studied over the years? Well, the most common eclipse is a partial eclipse in which the moon only covers part of the sun's disk. Those are interesting. They're sort of something to do in between total eclipses. Another solar eclipse type is the annular eclipse. And in some ways, it's similar to a total eclipse in that you've got the moon passing directly between you and the sun. But on the other hand, it's like a partial eclipse because not all of the sun is covered during an annular eclipse. The moon appears smaller than the sun and you're left with a ring or annulus of sunlight surrounding the moon during the maximum phase. And the disadvantage of that is that you don't get the darkness of totality. You don't get to see the solar corona. You don't see planets in the daytime. So it's really, as far as viewing it, it's much more like seeing a partial eclipse. Now, with all these eclipses that you've seen, a few have been in the United States, but a lot of these are happening in maybe some more remote places around the world. What's the most remote location you've gone to to see a solar eclipse? Hands down, Antarctica. Wow. It was on a Russian icebreaker for 28 days. We pulled off onto the ice sheet on eclipse day and set up on the ice sheet. Unfortunately, we had a lot of mixed cloud that day, so we saw bits and pieces of totality through some clouds. So it wasn't the best experience from that point of view, but the change in the lighting, we were surrounded by these icebergs, mm. and the change of the lighting, the colors on the icebergs was fabulous. Now, we're gonna be at Carbondale, obviously, for the 2017 eclipse, and what I'm wondering is, I know that that's a unique situation because seven years later, Carbondale again is gonna be right on the path of totality. Um, how frequent of an occurrence is that kind of intersection when it comes to eclipses? Well, the, the, the frequency of seeing a, a total solar eclipse from any one spot on the Earth is about once in 375 years. It varies a lot over that number. That's just a really average number. But to have two of them in the same place is astronomically unusual. The previous total eclipse that passed through Illinois was back in 1869, so over a century ago. Wow. And in the future, the next total eclipse in Illinois is 2153, so that's over 100 years into the future before we get another one here. Just from my limited experience, I've never seen a total solar eclipse, but from my mind, it seems like they would all be the same. What makes the solar eclipses different each time? Every solar eclipse is different. For one thing, you're because they happen all over the world, you're in a different country. You're experiencing a different culture, a different environment. It might happen at a different time of day. The duration of the eclipse is different from one eclipse to another. It might be 30 seconds in India and it might be seven minutes in Mexico. But the real major difference is that the sun's corona is very dynamic. It changes day to day, hour to hour. I mean, you look at the NASA SOHO images in the Lasco coronagraph and you see the, the corona really dynamic over the time scans, scales of each image that are taken. So imagine the, the difference in the corona from one eclipse to another that's separated by 18 months. They're enormously different. What is it about the eclipse that has, I mean, I sort of 
directed your life, this, this life goal of, of chasing them all around the globe. What is it about them that interests you the well, most? Well, th there's sort of two, two at least for me, there are sort of two aspects of it. One is the sort of intellectual sa satisfaction of being able to predict something with such precision and then see it come to fruition. But the other one is, is much more visceral. Uh, it's just the, the primal reaction of seeing the sun vanish in the daytime sky and replaced by this eerie twilight and the outflashing of the sun's solar corona, which is just the most spectacular, beautiful, natural phenomenon I have ever seen with the naked eye. It's just incredible. And no photograph, no video comes close to actually seeing it with your own eyes. Blair, while you were doing that interview with Fred, I was just actually hanging on every word. And I, I have to say, he's probably one of the most interesting interviews we've ever had on NASA Edge. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about the preparation that goes into an event like this. I mean, because of weather, right. he's got to be ready to go out what, to the West Coast and be ready to view the eclipse there, Carbondale, or even on the East Coast, and make that decision at the last moment so that he can continue his reign as Mr. Eclipse. But I tell you what, that is sort of the, the big X factor in, t in viewing a total solar eclipse is going to be the weather. Yep. I mean, you have to, you know, a lot of these eclipse chasers are on point the day or two before. They don't know where they're going. That's true. So. We're going to be locked into Carbondale, Illinois, but I'm actually wondering if he actually has his own private jet so he can hop around <laughs> and get to where he needs to be. If he doesn't, it's a good call. Think he has Mr. Eclipse on the side? Maybe. And speaking of being locked in, you know, being in Carbondale at Southern Illinois University, you know, Bob Baer, who is the co-chair of the Eclipse Steering Committee, gave us an invitation to actually come out and do the show there. And we, had, and we were out there a couple months ago uh, to check out the facilities, and we're looking for you know, a big show there. And I had a chance to sit down with Bob and uh, learn all about the activities that are going to go on. So Bob, you're one of many cities along the path of totality that's going to be covering the Eclipse. What is Southern Illinois University going to be bringing to the table? So quite a bit. Um, this is a really large area here in Southern Illinois, and the university's about six to seven miles from the point of greatest duration. We're setting up a lot of different venues here. We've got venues that will be open to the public leading up to in the day of the eclipse. We're gonna try to enhance people's experience when they come here. Now, we're expecting millions of people are not just in the United States, but from around the world to be flocking along the path of totality from Oregon all the way down to Charleston. How are you going to deal with all these crowds coming to Carbondale? That's a really good question. So what we've been doing in our planning is we've been planning for what we think we can handle on campus. We're working with the city. The city's doing some of their own planning as well, but we're trying to tie it together so that it works well. But give the people who are coming here a place to go. Let them, in some cases, reserve tickets for some of the venues so that they know that they have a spot. We're working with the hotels through the area, and as well as with the state property, the parks, right. the state forests, the national forests. There's a lot of people from those organizations today to take part in planning. Are you going to offer programs for your students to, to be able to do any scientific research with the Equips next year? The main one here is the Citizen Kate experiment. Okay. And that one, as you can see, we have one of the telescopes mm -hmm. here today from that. We got involved in that a couple years ago while it was still being formed somewhat. I was working with Matt Penn, who's the PI of that project. And 
I went with one student from SIU to Indonesia. I went with a physics undergraduate named Sarah Kovac. Okay. And Sarah's leading a good-sized group of students here. They'll be doing a workshop here at this conference tomorrow and continuing this through this eclipse as well as beyond, we hope. Now, you were over in Indonesia to, to view the last eclipse, which was back in March of this year? March 9th, 2016, yep. So what are some tips that you can give to the general public who may want to see the eclipse or the, if they're outside the path of totality to see the partial eclipse that may help them out? So the eclipse is big. That was one of the things I didn't understand. When I saw it in the sky, it was a lot larger than I expected. You've got this full moon and you've got a corona, and that corona looked to be about twice the diameter of the sun. So you don't need a telescope to see that. Yeah. <laughs> you can see a full moon, naked eye, and you can see that corona naked eye. And that's the only way you can see the corona. There's a sunset effect that you get 360 degrees around you. So if you have some open space anywhere around you, you can see that sunset. If you have a lot of open space, if you're up on a high elevation, the sunset's all around you. And that sunset, those colors fade in and fade out. For people who are nature lovers, you've got all these cool sounds coming in, like the frogs, the crickets, all the animals that come awake at night come awake during an eclipse. Wow. And it's it gets pretty loud. In Indonesia, that got very loud where we were at. We had tropical birds just going crazy around us. And then depending on the place you're in, like for Carbondale, we're gonna have the crowds here. I'm really excited to see this with a large amount of people, to hear the roar of the crowd, to see the reactions of the people. The partials, eclipse glasses are great, projection methods are great, and as you get close to totality, those high percentage partials, like say a 90% partial, when that light comes down through the trees or through a hole, like a pinhole, or even you can hold out your hands and you can see the diffraction patterns on the ground. You can see little shapes of the eclipse on the ground oh, wow. as you get to 90% and above. Wow. So there's lots of cool things kids can do during the partial as long as they're supervised. If I had some advice for people who are gonna take pictures, take pictures of the partials with proper filters, that's great, that's a lot of fun. You've got like an hour to do that in. But once totality hits, you really need to be looking at totality and just enjoying it. Once you have totality and that moon is blocking the, the disk of the sun, you can pull those glasses off and see the corona. In that, fact, you have to, right? Because if you're still yeah, wearing that, the glasses, that's, that's right. you won't be able to see anything. But then that's where the time comes in because I think for us in Southern Illinois, I think it's like two minutes and 40 seconds for totality. But once you approach that 240, you gotta put those glasses back on because once you see the sun again, I mean, it could damage your eyes. Yeah, it's very important. And what's also interesting, in addition to all these events and the safety, it's not even just limited to that right. particular weekend. I had a chance to talk to Emily Stanley from the Girl Scouts, and they're planning several STEM activities to help prepare the Girl Scouts and others for the science behind the eclipse. Let's check it out. Emily, I understand that the Girl Scouts are very interested in STEM initiatives and implementing them. And I'm just wondering, how do you go about adding these STEM initiatives into the Girl Scout program? Well, we really like to incorporate all things girl-led. So girls choose what they do. And then we want to make it hands-on because we found research-wise that girls learn better. So all our activities are hands-on, girl-led, and then they cooperatively problem-solve, which as you probably know is important for today's working society too. That's awesome, and what a great place. I mean, being out here, you can just imagine all the, the science that goes on out here. What are some examples of some things that you do now for STEM with the Girl Scouts? 
In uh, Girl Scouts of Southern Illinois, we have two very strong initiatives, the Outdoor Adventure Initiative and the STEM Initiative. And it's great when the two marry together and we have a lot of environmental education. Girls get to sample water, look at water quality, look at the um, flora and fauna in the camps and the areas that they're outdoors. And then with the STEM initiative, we like to take it a little step further and have microscopes out and dip nets, and then they can classify the animals. We also like the water quality aspect because there's an opportunity to introduce a lot of chemistry. Yeah, now, how are you going to incorporate some of these themes for the upcoming eclipse into this uh, STEM initiative? Well, we're really, really excited because we're going to have some space science badges ready by next year. Our national office is, is currently editing those. I think what we're going to do from a council perspective is we're going to marry the outdoor and STEM initiatives and we're going to get the girls outside and active during the day, appreciating the planet they live on. And then perhaps in the evening do some more astronomy work and then we're going to do some like hard science where we're looking at the uh, rover function and programming robots that help us explore extraterrestrial areas. These are really great uh, initiatives and activities that you're planning. How do you get them involved in all the individual groups? Do you have to train leaders? Uh, are they already trained? How does that work? Well, as you can imagine, in 40 and a half counties and 13,000 girls, we have to rely on some very dedicated adults. And uh, we're very fortunate. We have about 4,000 dedicated adults in our council. And they go through basic leadership training, which is incorporating how to use our curriculum, our core curriculum, and our badges. And then we have a lot of little extra trainings on telescope and GPS. And uh, we have Sky Scouts to help them navigate the night sky with the girls. As far as we have resource kits, the leaders can check out, which has a printed curriculum and everything you'd need to do to so do science experiments in your troop or out at camp, which is ideal. And we do get to beta test a lot, which is a lot of fun. That's what we call it, right? right beta right. test. I got to go on the beta test right. this weekend. It's just fun play at work. Yeah, it's great. So a lot of times we'll test out the experiments, which makes for a very interesting kitchen scene in our, our core office. But It becomes a lab, right? It does. It really does. Awesome. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of kitchens, um, Girl Scout's famous for some cookies, I, I believe. I, I wouldn't know, but <laughs> I'm assuming so. Are you guys going to have an Eclipse cookie, maybe? Maybe not an Eclipse cookie, per se, but we certainly are going to use the cookies in helping promote the Eclipse activities that we're going to do. Would that involve some extra cookies being available that we could perhaps uh, eat during the production? Of say? course, of course. That's how we often thank our collaborators. Our girls are really good at getting out there and part of the cookie sale is learning financial literacy skills, which is important to any job, but especially a job in STEM. You know, Blair, I'm really glad you had a chance to interview Emily because education, uh, especially at the kids that age, it's, it's extremely important to understand the science aspects of it. And what a great way for the Girl Scout to give back to the community and understanding just what a total solar eclipse is. And, and that's what makes this whole event so unique is the Girl Scouts will be prepared to enjoy this eclipse and maybe some of them will be able to enjoy the one in 2024, seven years later as well, but it's so, such a unique event. You know, I was a, a Boy Scout when I was growing up in Baltimore, and we didn't have an opportunity to, you know, view something like this. So, I, you know, for kids coming around these days to have the opportunity through the Girl Scouts and through NASA Edge and through what we're, you know, producing, I think it's great for the kids. Now, were you able to bring back some Girl Scout cookies? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's also interesting that it's, it's not even just stopping at the Girl Scouts. Right. One of the cool things about an event like this that we know about so far in advance is there's lots of citizen science going on. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is the Citizen Kate experiment, where they're actually going to use telescopes across the country uh, to gather data about the eclipse. And I had a chance to sit down with Matt Penn, and who's organizing the event, to find out exactly what's behind Citizen Kate. 
Now, Matt, you're working on a very cool project for the Eclipse called Citizen Kate. Tell me all about it. Right, so the Citizen Continental America Telescopic Eclipse Experiment, or Citizen Kate Experiment for short, um, involves a network of telescopes across the country. And we're gonna have a spectacular eclipse coming across the country, but at any one site, you can only see the corona during totality for maybe two minutes. What we'd like to do is to study the corona for a much longer period of time. And by stringing together a network of sites and merging that data, we'll be able to make a movie 90 minutes long uh, showing the corona. So you guys are making a film kind of like Orson Welles with Citizen Kane. You're Citizen Kate. Rosebud, Missouri is actually a town that's in the path of totality. So in the park in Rosebud, Missouri, at around noon, people will see uh, the corona for about two and a half minutes. It's an opportunity to name the program and, and have several different twists that work really well. Is your movie going to be in black and white? Because I love <laughs> black and white. Yes, it will be in black and white. We have monochrome cameras. Now, how are you going to get these observations all along the path of totality? Right. It's, it's going to be a challenge. Certainly, we don't have enough solar physicists in the country to man these locations with scientists. So we're reaching out to volunteers, people who do amateur astronomy as a hobby, or people in school who like astronomy, or teachers, with the added bonus that the idea is we'll give them the telescope and the equipment after the eclipse. So the eclipse is something that they'll participate in. It's cutting-edge research. And then afterwards, they can take the telescope home and continue with astronomy research at night. Now, are you obligating them to provide data for the rest of their lives? If, <laughs> if you give them a telescope, then they've got to report in to you? Or is this really just one of those inspirational things? You know, um, speaking with the people here at the meeting, you understand that they're just driven. They're, they're motivated. This is their passion to look at the skies. And so I'm not really going to have to, you know, encourage them or make them sign a contract. These are the people who are going to go out and use the telescope at night just because they love to do it. So I think this is the best way to deal with the resources of the telescope after the eclipse. Now, would this only apply to amateur scientists that are in the path, or would anybody be available if they could travel? Oh yeah, so we have across the country about 100 or 150 people volunteering who have you know, hotel reservations and are going to be at the eclipse and just want to be involved in the project to, to take data. You know, a, another benefit is that the data that will be collected will be used for cutting edge science and those people will be involved in the publications and they'll be cited, their contributions will be cited properly. So if I were able to participate in this program and I collected some observations and data and you used it scientifically, would I be able to receive an honorary <laughs> doctorate in some kind? Because I'm really looking to get into the scientific community. Um, well, uh, if I had a, my own university and could do that, I would certainly give you a degree. Um, but people uh, will be acknowledged in a respectable way in, uh, in the publications and the research that comes out, yes. Thinking of this movie that you're going to construct with this data, you have to train these people to actually capture the data well? How do you do that? Yeah, there are some things that, uh, you know, are a little bit complicated. First, setting up the telescope is going to be a little time-consuming. And then we have about an hour's worth of calibration data before the eclipse, where people have to be following we hope a pretty simple script to take the calibration data, to turn the data you know, just from pictures into real science quality data. So we're going to have some training sessions, and right now we're working with four student groups at different universities and training them to become the trainers for the 2017 event. Now, if this is successful, do you anticipate replicating this program and perhaps taking an additional step in, say, 2024? Yes. The interesting thing about this is it could also be a test case for the 2024 eclipse. That eclipse uh, has a longer duration, um, which means we can collect more scientific data. And it's also exciting because it involves the entire North American continent. So we can go from Mexico through the United States and Canada. It'll be a real international affair. And we're looking forward to having another project building on what we learned from 2017. So it's kind of a, a global uh, citizenship for Citizen Kate in 2020. 
24. Exactly. There are many programs, uh, Astronomers Without Borders is one of those programs that does astronomy around the globe. And you know, a, a total solar eclipse doesn't care what country uh, it crosses, it's going to cross the Earth. It's a nice way to unite people from different countries and have a shared experience with the sun and the moon. Matt's project is really interesting. You know, I really can't wait to see the data and the images from the scientists across the country uh, when they put it together to make that film. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Franklin. If we weren't doing the live show, it would be cool to pick a spot along that path of totality, get one of his telescopes, collect the data for, uh, for Matt and his team, and then we would be, you know, a part of, of history. When are we going to talk about harvesting the sun's power for my egomaniacal purposes? <laughs> Man, we're not talking about harvesting the sun. We're here to observe the beauty of the sun during the total solar eclipse. And, and get some science out of it. I'm just trying to get my money's worth out of this mask. <laughs> <laughs> You're watching NASA Edge. An inside and outside look? At all things NASA. Dude, uh, aren't you too short to be coloring? Really? We gotta break into the short jokes. He's on two apple boxes. I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in a chair. Come on now. I mean, what was he, like? 6'1". What? <laughs> you ever seen a 5'4 Kylo Ren? <laughs> Come on, man. Well, are there any 5'5 five, five characters in Star Wars that you can think of? Ewoks. Jawas. <laughs> really? Jawas? Bad call. I'm taller than they are.